Thank you. Okay, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Father, help us see Lord Jesus, as You said, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And so as Your Word this morning on justification by faith alone goes forth, I beg that You Work your miracle of hearing, of tasting, seeing that you are good. To the glory of your name and to the eternal salvation and freedom of us who hear. Amen. In the 1500s during the Great Reformation, Martin Luther wrote, When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Justification is the Master and Prince, the Lord, the Ruler, and the Judge over all kinds of doctrines. End quote. We're 500 years later, and I do not think that that is an exaggeration. Because justification is the answer to the most important human question How can I be made right with God? How can I be on good terms with my Creator? Because as we have seen, this is the fourth week of this series on justification by faith alone. We all have been born into sin. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is 
holy and just and righteous and good. And therefore, God's perfect, righteous, judicious wrath hangs over every one of us. And so, either we, during this life, must somehow be set right with God, His law, or we will perish in judgment eternally. Over the last three sermons in this series, we have seen that justification, or to be justified, means God does something outside of us. Not in us in justification. It is a declaration in the courtroom of God concerning a sinner. Just, acquitted, forgiven, forever, paid in full, and perfectly obedient and righteous before Me forever. Based not upon their obedience. Based not upon any righteousness that they have performed in obedience to the law, but based on someone else's obedience. Based on another human being's perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ alone. The One who also therefore took by imputation our sins on the cross and died. Satisfied justice. And was raised from the dead to prove it. It's what we've seen. And then last week, we asked the question, why is it by faith? Why does that come to a sinner by faith? Why are those ones the ones for whom Christ's life and death and resurrection is applicable to their life forever and not others. Because we saw that faith is the only way that God would save or could save and exclude all boasting, sinful, arrogant pride in us human beings. And so we saw this Gospel the only Gospel that saves called justification by faith alone comes from God's grace. But He didn't sweep sin under the rug. It is founded on the ground of Jesus Christ coming and becoming a human being in His life and His death. And then we saw the means by which God connects particular sinners with Jesus Christ so that they are justified in Him. The means is faith. And that brings us to today. To the question, what is that faith that justifies? That's a Really important question, particularly in our day, in our age. There are many evangelicals, which I consider my one, that's myself one, 
that seem to assume that faith that saves a person, justifies a person, is merely mental assent or agreement with certain doctrines about Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection from the dead. It's something, in other words, that we exercise, I exercise my faith at the beginning or the start of the Christian life. We affirm a bunch of truths that come from the Bible about Jesus and about heaven and the resurrection and He died for sins. We affirm those and say, yes, amen, that's faith, you're in whether or not there has been any internal desire change in your heart toward that Savior. Whether there is ever any fruit of desire, joy in the Savior. And so, the question Yes, we are justified by nothing that we do or act in obedience to God, but only by faith, totally apart from any works of obedience. But what is that faith that justifies? And so, where I'm going is to say this. There are three essential elements to saving faith. And if you don't have all three, you are not justified. You are outside of Christ. And you ought to flee to Him in order to be made right forever. Picture it this way. We're justified by faith. And that faith is just one whole pie. But that pie is cut into three pieces of the pie. And you must have all three. The first piece of the pie of faith that you must have is knowledge. You have to have some information of the news of Jesus Christ come to your mind. In other words, faith without anything in front of it, any content, any truth statements, is not true faith. Before I believe in Christ, I have to believe Something about Christ. That's why Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 14, How then, or like the Muslims we just heard about in Muslim nations, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? You can't call on someone you don't believe in. How are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard. How are they to hear without a preacher? So the message must go forth 
in Gideon Bibles, in street evangelism, in churches every Sunday morning, in neighborhoods. The message has to be preached. It's got to go forth in order for people to hear. And when they hear, they could believe. And if they truly believe, they have the whole pie, they will call upon Him. So, faith is not blind faith. It has an object. The truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a special content of historical truth and theological meaning in that truth that one must know in order to truly believe. So the first piece of the pie of saving faith is the knowledge of what at the core the message of Jesus Christ is. There is a God. You're not Him. You have sinned. He is holy. Judgment's coming. And He fulfilled His promises through the Hebrew Scriptures and God the Son became a human being in order to take your punishment and live your life for you. And God raised Him from the dead. If you believe with the whole pie, you are saved forever. You've got to have that first piece though, that knowledge. But you have to have also the second piece, which is, okay, I see what Christianity is teaching. You must agree with it. The core, the gospel message. You, you, you must sense it. Not only do I know what Christianity teaches, but I agree with those truth statements. See, it's one thing to understand what biblical Christianity teaches about Jesus. It's another thing to agree. Yes. I actually agree with an unprecedented reality that some were eyewitnesses to that a human being who was dead, cold for almost three whole days came back to new, immortal Resurrection life. You've got to agree with it. You, you know that? I just know that that is true. You see, it's very possible to understand what Christianity is teaching like that and still be lost because you don't believe what it teaches. Many of you might not know this, but there are numbers of Ph.D. scholars who even get paid to write commentaries on Bible books who don't believe that message. And thus they're not saved. Gotta have the knowledge. And you gotta agree with it. But if you just have the knowledge and agreement with the Gospel, that is not enough to be saved. There is still one-third of the pie 
missing. This was true of my life until I was 19 years old. And the way that I wrote it up in the first chapter of my spiritual autobiography goes like this. Throughout my childhood, I assumed the existence of God. And that Jesus Christ was God who became a human being in order to die for sinners. I believed that He was the one and only Savior of the world. After all, that is what I was taught. That was my culture. I went to church. I took communion. And yet, I was not a Christian. Of course, I did not know I was unsaved. Most of us don't know we are unsaved until our eyes are opened by the miracle of new birth and we awaken as believers who have a personal, intimate faith in Jesus Christ. And so, if your believing in Christ consists only of head knowledge about the Gospel that you affirm and you agree with, then at that point your faith is no different than the faith of demons. They know the truth and they agree with it. It's true. And it produces something in them. Shuddering with fear of what is to come. You've got to have the third piece. And the third piece of the pie of faith is not only knowing it, I, okay, I agree that it's true, my mind knows that, but something beyond the mind, the Bible calls the heart or your guts. There's something about your desires that say, that's beautiful. I love that truth. I've never heard anything as close to something that could really reach the depths of my hunger than that. Jesus put it this way. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field which a, a man found and, and he buried it, hid it again. And from joy over that treasure, he goes and he sells all that he has in order to buy the field. So the treasure would be His. Back in the 1500s and second generation reformers in the 1600s talked very much like I'm talking this morning. They understood there's all kinds of false faiths that are not the saving faith. And they spoke of it as they did much theology in Latin back then with these three words. Notitia, that's what we've discussed about the first piece of the pie, meaning knowledge. A census, 
That's the second piece of the pie. You've got to agree with it, assent to it. Yes, it's true. And the third piece they called fiducia. Really hard to define other than like Jesus' words with the treasure in the field. It is when your desires, something is new that wasn't there before and you just have a hunger, a change of values in the object of that which you have been searching for all your life in all the wrong places and you have found that which satisfies your soul. In Christ, in Christ alone. Again, Satan has noticia. He's got knowledge better than every Christian almost. He has a census. He agrees. He knows it's true. But he hates it. It is distasteful to him, he does not have saving faith. He has no fiducia that says, I've tasted of what I see and know to be true. And it is good. Knowing and agreeing with gospel truths are necessary, but not sufficient to be justified in Christ. Those two don't make you a Christian. Believing at the core is being satisfied with the truth of the Gospel. Jesus put it this way in John 6.35. I am the bread... Notice, Jesus is such a good preacher... He uses analogies that are so familiar to us. What's more familiar than eating? Tasting. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes... Here's his definition of faith. To believe. He who believes in me should never thirst. Believing in Jesus is coming to Him in such a way that your hunger, your thirst are satisfied. Where you once went to different restaurants, in eight of the world, no more you have found your most favorite restaurant that none other can compare. And so that's where you're always eating. Believing is based upon new taste buds for the truth of the Gospel. Of Jesus Christ. They're new tastes, but it's not the one in your mouth, but the one that's immaterial in your soul. That's fiducia. You once ate and enjoyed 
and thought always momentarily, the world is satisfying until you were given, if you have been given, new taste buds. And you came to Him and you found Jesus was right. To whom else shall we go? I don't hunger anymore like I did before I met this man by the Spirit. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Okay, that's human experience. I'd say he's so in touch. And you're not, tr- there's a kind of troubling in the heart that we know it's different than an intellectual problem I can't solve at the moment. You know what it's like to have goosebumps of fear on you because you're in trouble with your wife or husband or, or anything. You, you're troubled and you know what it's like if you have tasted Jesus and seen because you knew what it was like to come to grips with the depth of your sin. And you talk about troubled soul. Oh, what grace that trouble is. And so he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. And believe also in me. So he's saying, believing, it brings a relief that's beyond your mind of agreement. It brings a relief to your heart, to your soul, to your desire factory, to your affections. That thing within us that has the ability of joy and fear and dread and hope. Something changes. It's beyond solving the intellectual problems of there's evil in the world and God is good. That's all part of faith as you walk it. But this what Jesus is talking about. Don't let your heart be troubled. Come unto Me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul. This is a deep-centered, emotional connection and experience with the Savior. Now, for way over a hundred years, particularly in the American fundamentalist and evangelical church world, there has been in evangelism a push to get people to make a decision for Christ to be saved. Which implies you can be saved without the third piece of the pie. Now, Pastor and theologian James Boyce, who's, gosh, he's seems like yesterday, but I think he's been dead for at least 10 years. He wrote about 15 years ago, Unfortunately, there is a sizable segment of the evangelical church that restricts 
the confession, Jesus is Lord, to the belief that Jesus is a divine Savior. And it explicitly eliminates any idea that Jesus must be Lord of our lives for us to be Christians. It teaches that a person can be a Christian without being a follower of Jesus Christ. It reduces the Gospel to the mere fact of Christ having died for sinners. It requires of sinners only that they acknowledge this by the barest kind of intellectual assent quite apart from any repentance or turning from sin. And then it assures them of their eternal security when they may very well not even be born again. This view bends true biblical faith beyond recognition. And it offers a false assurance to people who may have given verbal assent to this reductionist type of Christianity, but who are not in God's family. End quote. I fully agree with him. It's what I'm preaching this morning. This deficient view of what saving faith is implies there's no necessary connection between saving faith and a heart change of loving Christ as one's treasure, which then is producing obedience, which is flowing from the new life, the new desires in the person. But instead, so often faith to be saved is presented as a momentary mental assent, agreement to gospel facts. And so there has been a system developed in American evangelicalism on how to get people saved. It pushes them to make a decision, particularly when you can hold them captive in an evangelistic service, Sunday morning services. Like a good movie can get you emotional. You can get them emotional with persuasive speaking. Let them know. You might go out and have lunch. It's going to all be gone then, so make a decision now. They come and they say a prayer after you. They ask Jesus into their heart and you say, Abracadabra, now you're born again. Now you're saved. Remember this day. Write it down on your calendar. You're going to heaven no matter what period, end of issue. This is what Christianity is. You're justified. No matter where your heart from then on out 
leads you. No matter what lifestyle you find yourself walking in. Uh Uh-uh. October 18th, 1981, I asked Jesus into my heart. Don't tell me that I ought to worry because I am an adulterer, a fornicator, a thief, cheating in business to extort money. Don't tell me I need to repent. Uh Uh-uh. Pastor Joe taught on justification by faith alone. If you draw that conclusion I just get, you have misinterpreted me, and I'm saying you've misinterpreted the Bible. It is by faith alone. But this is that faith alone by which we are saved. What has happened within the church is this de-supernaturalizing of what biblical saving faith in Christ actually is. And I hate it. I hate it because it is eternally killing people. And it is really harmful to evangelism because it is inoculating people to the truth. See, if we can turn viruses into something positive, like the virus to come and to change you, to get into your system so that you get connected with Christ forever and be saved, and it comes through a message preached, but before that virus got to your church, or your town, or your city, someone came with a needle to mimic it, to shoot it into your veins. This two-piece of the pie, Christianity, not three. When you hear it, they don't hear it. Their body won't receive it anymore. Many people's souls, even when they get the privilege of hearing the unadulterated truth of the Gospel, it's for lunch. They can't hear it. And this has produced a mass of worldly, flesh-following, church-going people who have a false assurance of their salvation. And because that presentation of what it is to believe in Christ has been so predominant over the last hundred or so years. There is another doctrine that had to develop. What do we do with all these worldly people in the church? Oh, I know. Okay, It's possible because you said a prayer and you asked Jesus and you were sincere. Came in your heart. He saved. You want to deny that. So it's possible to have Jesus as your Savior. Even though you've never have made Him your Lord who can command you. Many of you have been in churches and it's what they indoctrinated you with. Oh, they're all going to heaven. But there's two stages of Christianity. Those who've only made Him the Savior and then those super spiritual ones who go on to be disciples. And boy, do we have discipleship program. Because you've got to have a mentor. 
got to go on. Not have to get into heaven just because that, I guess it's a better way to live. What has happened? Popular evangelicalism is it faith in Jesus to be saved has been reduced to only the first two pieces of the pie of saving faith. And what that has done is given lots of church-going people and leaders confidence. We can manage the steps to conversion now. We can manage this because being saved in Christ, that can happen without internal, deep-seated transformation of the eyes of one's heart and their taste buds. And where for centuries the pastorate has been at the core, preachers, Expository, biblical preaching. Teaching. Because it's the means by which God brings about faith. It has been transformed in recent decades to, no, 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 we need managers to manage these systems. We need CEO types to run this because we can grow Coca-Cola. We can grow Christians. Saving faith is the whole pie. Faith as the means of being justified. That faith is supernatural. It is a work of God. It is not merely human decision making. We, we can do noticia. No, okay, I read. I want to know. I understand Christianity. You can do that. We can do, I agree with that. We can do that with our mind. But fiducia, the third piece, is a miracle. Faith to be saved, to be justified, is a human act of the mind. Agreeing with the content of the Gospel. Absolutely. And it is a human act of the heart being satisfied with Christ. But the Bible teaches that naturally, the state in which we're all born because of Adam, the human mind is naturally blind to spiritual truth. And the human heart is naturally hard, non-receptive, and dead to seeing the Gospel of Christ as a treasure to us. Then how will anyone be saved by faith? Thank God the Bible didn't stop there. I can go for a couple hours, but just make it very simple. Jesus gave the answer when He said, unless a person 
is born again. He cannot see nor enter the kingdom of God. In John 6.44, He said, No one can come to Me. How many people? No one can come to Me. Unless the Father who sent Me draws them. What's the point? So you put all these weeks together, okay? There is no actual justification without regeneration. That's a big word for new birth. There is no justification without regeneration because there is no saving faith without new birth. New birth produces fiducia. Satisfaction in Him. This is how Peter said it in First Peter. Just hear his flow. I'm convinced he agrees with what I've said. Blessed be God. He's talking to the church. Believers. Blessed be God who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. What came out of that? Unto a living hope in the promises of the Gospel that he goes on to say. And then, now, now listen how he describes it a few verses later. Oh, believer who's been alive in Christ through the whole pie. And though you have not seen Jesus, like I, Peter, have in the flesh, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of that faith the salvation of your souls. Believing in Christ to be justified is the result of having our eyes opened to see Him. The knowledge, I see it, I agree with it, but not only that, to be wowed by it. To be affected at the core of our desires by it. This is how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 4. And if, as we go out and present the truth, because you've got to have content for people to agree with, or there's not going to be any faith. So we go out and that happens. And he says, and if our gospel message is veiled, can't, they can't see it to believe in it. It is veiled 
to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel, of the glory of God, of Christ, who is the image of God. Wait, wait, just stop. That's the problem. They don't have fiducia, which would mean the veil's lifted. And they see clearly the light of the Gospel, of the glory. What is that? That's God in all of His splendor, who He is. It means His beauty. The truth that He's the eternal fountain of pleasures forevermore. They see the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and the life is forever changed. But no, what? The unbelievers don't because their minds and hearts are blinded. But then Paul goes on to say, but it is God. Are you in Christ? Have you tasted of Him? Okay, then he says to you, it is God who said, remember in Genesis, creating the world, etc. Let light shine out of darkness. He spoke it and it came into being. It is that God who has shone, meaning shined, in our, not minds only, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light, that light that sees and it admires the glory of Christ is not a mere decision. You can't decide to admire something. I might be able to bring you to the Getty and get you to admire a Rembrandt painting. Thinking a human being did this. And you might gawk at it for 20 minutes being amazed. Or even, and I have got to the place where I actually was at the Getty, a Monet. Get up close, it's nothing. What blobs of paint? And you back up and you, I think, I can't do that. That is amazing. But you might have to lie to me if I try to get one of Lindsay's three-year-old paintings that we used to put on the refrigerator and say, admire it. It's not a decision. It's like food. You tell me. Okay, let's just change the analogies. You don't want to go to hell. No. You want to live forever without judgment? Yeah, I would like that. Okay, what you need to do then. Here's the means. Okay, the means is faith. But let's just switch it up for a little bit. Here's the means, Joe. You've got to not just eat this shrimp. If you know me, you know I would touch it. 
You, you, not only have to eat this disgusting shrimp, you have to eat it and love it. You have to taste it as delicious to you. Okay, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to decide to do that. It doesn't work. Another shrimp hater. It doesn't work that way. But what I do love is, is my wife's chicken enchiladas. And with that sauce and those tomatoes. Okay. And I say, in order to come to Christ, you must taste and see that He is... Well, Christ is the chicken enchiladas here, okay. And then, but if I get you to say, just agree that these chicken enchiladas are delicious, you'll be saved. And you say, okay, I agree. I do that. I, I pray. Yes, Sonia's chicken enchiladas are wonderfully delicious. But you've never tasted them? That is a false faith. The faith that saves is, I can say it all I want. That's the preacher. And then, invite you over, put them in front of you, and you put the chicken enchiladas into your mouth. And you say, those are really good. That's the faith that springs from new birth. You don't just make a decision to taste my wife's enchiladas as delicious to you. They either are or they're not. We cook them. We set them before people. It's called evangelism. We can choose to take a fork and take a piece off and to stick it into our mouths. Absolutely make decisions for that. Encourage people to make decisions doing that stuff. But to taste them as yummy, that's not a choice. And if because of sin nature that we are all riddled with, if naturally our taste buds are ruined so that everything tastes like disgusting shrimp instead of my wife's chicken enchiladas, then we will never taste that meal of the Gospel is delicious. Unless God by the Spirit in the hearing, presenting of the enchiladas changes miraculously our taste bud our palate, our desire factory through new birth. That's the faith that saves. But when a theology gains hold on a Christian culture 
which it has, which views Christ and views faith in Christ is merely knowing some things and agreeing with that content so that you won't go to hell. I mean, who wants to go to hell? I mean, if it's real, at least I got an insurance policy. Okay, I'll do that. I'll make a decision. When a system has so developed so that we mortals now can also manage this system and figure out better tricks to get people into our system. It's created havoc. So I'm even going to talk to our kids being raised up in here because they're just examples of millions of kids over the last 50 years being raised in two piece of the pie. Wait a minute, that was wait, I gotta stop that now. I hope you're not raised that way in this church. But so many in evangelicalism raised up. Well, who's not gonna like Jesus at age three? I mean I like my Sunday school teacher. Of course they're all gonna like Jesus. And then they're taught this two piece of the pie faith that saves and they're given full assurance. And they may not have been born again. No one's told them. You've got to taste and see that He's good. They don't have the third piece of the pie. Fiducia. And we wonder why, therefore, in the millions, so-called Christian X. Y, Z, turns 18, 19, 20, 25. And by 25, a large majority of those kids growing up in our youth groups are totally gone from even pretending anymore. But many of them for the rest of their life will be church going. It's their culture. And we wonder why they are so worldly. We watch them eat and eat and eat and by passing the chicken enchiladas day after day and week after week and month after month. But they're Christians and they speak that way and they still pray. Oh, doctrine is important. But they don't have any real hunger for Jesus. They keep agreeing. I'll put the shrimp. I want shrimp. I just don't want to go to hell. And now, what they do though, they don't swallow it. Because it's disgusting to them. And they will never admit it that way mentally to themselves. Uh-uh. They get out the door every Sunday and they spit it out. How? By the way they live. They're spitting out taste for Christ. And so many of them, even though they will remain churched, are inoculated. But they are perishing in their sin because they have not been justified 
by faith alone. Now, closing. Have you tasted and seen as a broken, undone, ungodly sinner the beauty of Jesus Christ Himself in all of His glory and all of His work? If you say, yes, He's mine, think about what a salvation this is. He produced in you the third piece of the pie. And He puts you in His Son. And He planned it, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, from before the foundation of the world. So listen. Go on tasting. Go on eating. And listen to me. You will never be lost because He grabbed you. Enjoy Him freely. Rejoice in Him deeply. Hate the counterfeit food of the world to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, may this be the reason why we are here this morning to eat and to enjoy this glory of Yours in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray the strong working of Your Spirit, not just as You have been doing in this room now, but for each and every one of us throughout this week and this month and this year to wake up amazed at the deliciousness of fellowship with You. May this, by Your Spirit, be the driving force why we pray, why we fellowship, why we read our Bibles, why we listen to sermons, why we have discussions, why we overflow to unbelievers in evangelism. May this be the driving appetite of our lives, O Father, through Jesus Christ. Amen.